Welcome to Reinventing Solidarity, a podcast of the journal New Labor Forum and the School of Labor and Urban Studies at the City University of New York. My name is Paula Finn, podcast host and editor of New Labor Forum. Reinventing Solidarity features scholars, activists, and artists on the front lines of movements for social and economic justice. We ask the essential and often provocative questions about race, class, gender, and the role of organized labor and social justice organizations in the work of creating a radically different world, a world with solidarity, equality, and sustainability at its heart. In this episode, journalist Laura Flanders speaks with Sean Sweeney, longtime New Labor Forum columnist and founding director of SLU's Trade Unions for Energy Democracy. Their conversation looks back over the seven years since the passage of the Paris Climate Agreement, noting the worldwide policy failures that have made that agreement a tragic hallmark of missed targets. Sean, thanks for joining me today to introduce this episode and enabling us to take account of the massive new development in climate change policymaking, the new Inflation Reduction Act. It's great to be here, Paula. Thank you. And despite the politically minded misnomer of its title, the act is in fact the world's largest piece of climate change legislation. Sean, you've had a chance to review a summary of the bill. Briefly, what's your estimation of it? Well, I think there's some good things, Paula, in the bill, and there's some not so good things that we should be wary of. The first thing, I think it's a complete contrast to the bill that the Democrats tried to pass a dozen years ago now, which had carbon trading as the main policy to reduce emissions. There's no reference, no use of carbon trading anymore. And I think that's a welcome change. What's less welcome, I think, is there's too much reliance on the private sector to respond to the subsidies that are on the table. Those subsidies are very, very generous. And so it's likely that there will be a wind and solar build out as a result of this. But it's a very expensive way of doing a renewable energy program in the United States. So I think we need to be wary of that, too. So I take it you're referring to subsidies to private companies that would start up new. That's right. It's tax credits. And so that's not a gift. You know, tax credits basically means that if you're giving a tax break to a private wind or solar developer, you're not using that tax revenue for something else. So there's a downside to this. There's no free lunch in this case. And it would be much quicker and, and less expensive if the government just basically procured the technologies themselves and basically set up their own domestic wind and solar industry. At the moment, there is no solar industry in the United States and not too much of a wind industry either. So they're hoping to use in these incentives to insource manufacturing from overseas into the US, but that's going to take quite a number of years to get moving. Are you waiting for something on the scale of a New Deal type legislation? And what do you think the political chances are of that happening, given the level of this crisis? Well, I don't think the chances are very good, but I think we always have to play a long game here, although we don't have a lot of time to really begin to address this 
issue. I think we will see there will be issues will get played out around the subsidies in the coming years. I mean, these subsidies are going to stretch into the 2030s and a 30% tax credit for solar companies, for example, is a big bill to pay and it's going to end up on the electricity bills of ordinary consumers. Look at the electric vehicle subsidies, $7.5 billion dollars put aside. So we're going to subsidize a family earning $300,000 a year to pay for, give them seven, you know, $7,000 tax break for purchasing an electric vehicle. I don't know if that's the best use of public funds when there's so much that could be done in energy conservation and rollout of publicly owned renewable energy in the United States. I imagine you're predicting that those rising costs, energy costs, will create the kinds of problems that were created in France when we saw the yellow vest movement. Is that exactly. right? Yes, exactly. I mean, although the good, like, to go back to the beginning of our conversation. I mean, the good news is that because there are no is no carbon price, it won't get passed down to you know people who have to drive for a living or who have to use an electric stove, for example. So there's some good things in the bill in that respect, getting away from that approach. Well, Sean, I'm so glad that we've asked you to do a full assessment of the bill for the January issue of New Labor Forum. So I encourage our readers and listeners to look out for that in January and probably coming out from us online ahead of time. Let's turn right now to your conversation with Laura Flanders, which I think spells out so clearly what the the failures of private investment and private ownership have been towards creating a sustainable future. On today's program, organized labor and the global climate crisis. Our guest is a leader in the fight for climate justice, Sean Sweeney, director of the International Program for Labor, Climate and Environment, a program of CUNY SLU, recently participated in the COP26 Global Climate Summit in Scotland. You may have heard about it. COP stands for Conference of the Parties, referring to the 197 nations that agreed to a new environmental pact, the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, at a meeting back in 1992. So what's happened since? Mr. Sweeney has much to report, including Labour's part in responding to the climate crisis and what actions will be taken following this summit. Welcome to CityWorks, Sean. Glad to have you. Laura Flanders, great to be in the same space as you. So as soon as you hear 26, you kind of think, really? We've had 26 of these things? And it inevitably says, well, why do we need so many of them? What's actually getting done? And what got done at this one? Well, I've been to about 12 of the 26. My first was 2007. And I thought then that the sort of urgency of the climate crisis was going to translate into some serious action. It was a little bit naive in retrospect. We've passed several tipping points, political tipping points. We've got the Paris Agreement of 2015. And since then, all through this period, with one or two years, like the COVID year 2020 notwithstanding, emissions have continued to rise. So whatever's happening, it's not impeding the rise of emissions. And so this is, I think, the fundamental mm. reality. So I hear you say we've got political um, commitments and political achievements, but you're distinguishing that between that and any kind of actual action. Well, if you think the Paris Agreement was one big compromise, it basically said countries should show us what they can do. There's no obligation, except a moral, perhaps, and a social obligation, but there's no, n nothing to prevent countries from not reaching their targets. And what we've seen is, yes, countries on the basis of a voluntary commitment were willing to say, well, we'll do X, we'll do Y in terms of 
the percentage of emissions they would either reduce or flatline on their way to 2030. That was Paris. Six years have gone by. Most of the major economies continue to increase their levels of emissions, and globally that's adding up to a failure from the point of reaching the commitments. So what did those who gathered at COP, uh, COP26 in Glasgow do and what were they called upon to do? And then we need to talk about who was actually able to be there. Well, you know, it, it, there's a case of sort of collective denial in some respects because countries were told by the United Nations Framework Convention back in late 2015 to go back and come back with more ambitious targets. They basically tallied up what was called the nationally determined contributions in 2015 and said if we, even if all of these commitments are met, we're still going to raise emissions to 2030 and beyond when we should be reducing emissions. So please come back five years from now with stronger targets. Five years became six years because of COVID. Stronger targets were delivered, but it hasn't answered the fundamental question is what is going to stop a repeat of the failure of the Paris targets being met? So countries, many of them, 150, have submitted more ambitious targets, including China, India, the United States. The major emitters have done so. Well, targets are all very well, but what about actually changing something? Well, this is where you get to the fundamentals of the, of the dynamics of the system. You know, it's easy to say, well, it's capitalism, stupid. It is. But how do you address the dynamics of growth and accumulation, which comes with an, a rise in energy use? Every year, energy use rises sort of on an average year between 2 and 3% a year. It's getting slightly more efficient, the use of the energy, but it doesn't stop the fact that there's more and more coal, oil and gas being burned every year. Year on year, it increases, almost without exception. So that's what we've got to confront, and that's the major political task. Now, when they say it's capitalism, I mean, obviously it is. And when you think of capitalism, you think of private business. And, well, it's hard for corporations, I mean, for governments, perhaps to police corporations. But there is an awful lot that governments can do. Uh, and Joe Biden right now is tying some of his climate work to the purchases and procurement that federal and I think he's hoping it'll be public agencies across the board will adopt. And in all credit to him, he's also tying it to labor, you know, unionization. What else can governments do? And just to underscore it, I mean, are there any countries around the world that are doing well saying we're only going to buy electric cars for our sector or we're only going to purchase from unionized plants that are green? Well, that's a couple of questions. I'll try to yeah. unpack them. I mean, the Biden commitment signifies a shift at the global level, it's not just in the United States. There's a sort of a recognition, without being explicitly stated, that the initial approach, which was to mobilize the private sector, to convince private investors that there was a big money to be made out of addressing the climate emergency, that, is, that was the biggest policy failure ever in world history, in my view. Well, it's not a failure, failure to try or failure to no. be heard. It was an assumption that comes out of the whole, I don't want to be overcomplicated about it, but the whole neoliberal agenda in the early 90s was the market can do nothing wrong and governments could do nothing right. So they said, well, look, what we'll do is we'll have incentives for low carbon solutions and we'll have attacks on carbon emissions. So those two, one was called a stick, the tax or a carbon price is a tax essentially, and the carrot was incentives for renewable energy, battery storage, etc. 
that has been an, a, an, a, you know, a terrible failure. The num levels of investment have not been mobilized. So what governments are doing now, and I, the Biden administration would be one of them, is saying, how do we de-risk investment? In other words, how do we get private companies to commit large volumes of money but we know, or governments know, the only way they're going to make that commitment if they're guaranteed a return on investment. So this looks like governments accepting that the market is not delivering, but it's actually, in many ways, more dangerous because it's leading to a transfer of public wealth over to private corporations in the name of protecting the climate. Oh, so talk more about that. I mean, I thought it was kind of noteworthy that even this morning as I was driving in, driving in my non-electric car, I have to admit, but it's very old. And next time it will be an yeah. electric car when I'm paid more, maybe. I'll forgive you, many won't. <laughs> I heard the Labour Secretary talk about maybe we need a little industrial planning. And I don't think I've heard those two words together coming out of a cabinet secretary for as long as I can remember. No, it's very significant. The, I think honest people, where, regardless of their ideology, perhaps, must look at the climate crisis and say, what we've done for the last 30 years it's not a problem of lack of political will or lack of ambition. It's a policy problem that we rely on private investment and the profit motive. That, when you take that out of the equation, it actually opens the door for real planning, which doesn't exist under the sort of late capitalist reality of quick returns and press releases and, you know, trips yeah. to Mars. So, so even yeah. just, I mean, to, just to unpack it, it's super basic, but if we want to have fewer emissions 10 years from now, there are things we need to do now and government can play a role in setting us on that course and not just asking people to follow it, but partnering them in following, them, uh, following it and incentivizing them by agreeing to buy stuff, to pay for stuff. That's right. Right? Well, one of the good things about the Green New Deal narrative is it actually pays it, asks us to look back in history and say, what was it about the New Deal that was so successful? One of it was the Rural Electrification Administration. It electrified middle America. And it was such a huge success that it became replicated all over the world. If it wasn't for public energy, suspending the profit motive, the world would be in darkness or large parts of uh, the global south and many parts of the global north maybe would be in darkness. So this, this approach, which is government intervention, planning, mobilizing technologies. Yes, you can procure from private suppliers, but you don't have to purchase, don't have to enter into a 30-year contract buying electricity from a renewable energy company. That's not the way to go. Buy a windmill, buy some solar panels, sure. But that means the government, that becomes public assets that then generate mm. clean energy. It's not as simple as that, but that's the fundamental, I think, point that needs to be And that's the, we're not quite there yet. We're still buying, not building. Well, at the moment, you'll see that there's still a faith in the idea that, that private renewable energy companies, for example, will make their money, will invest if they can make money on the sale of electricity. Mm -hmm. But that is, there's a lot of complicated pieces to this. But the problem with that is you have to have a situation where electricity markets are not volatile. In other words, they need to know what they're going to get. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, they're not going to commit hundreds of millions, if not you know, trillions of dollars in, in principle to the energy transition. Now, you wrote a paper about much of this in which you actually point quite a scary finger at the renewable energy companies and say that they are playing a role turning workers against action on climate change. Can you talk about that? Well, first of all, they didn't create the system. They didn't create the rules, but they are protecting their own intellectual property. 
only four or five countries produce most of the wind turbine generators and the blades. Only four, really, only two or three countries totally dominate the solar market. Mm. And they don't want to keep it that way. So if someone comes along and says, oh, well, I just came back from Cape Town in South Africa. South African government or the unions, which is their position at the moment, says, well, we'd like to develop a solar industry here or a wind industry here in South Africa. Can, will you help us? They would say no. But there's a lack of industrial capacity to reach the climate targets. So this has to be resolved on the basis of a public goods a global public goods approach. So that's fascinating. One of the great things about these conferences, whether they accomplish mm -hmm. anything else, is that people come together from all over the world. Now, there were real challenges for people to come to Glasgow in the middle of the pandemic with the rise of variants and so on. There was a lot of criticism mm -hmm. about particularly who from civil society was able to be there. Can you talk a bit about what happened outside the halls and, and maybe the roles that unions played? And then I'd love to hear a little bit about how you see the international worker scene on this issue. Well, we got a around some of the problems with the, the South non-participation by using technologies uh, and that helped and we also did bring one or two people from the global south from unions in the south but I think it raises a question what would the south say if it was in the room because at the moment the narrative has been fixed now for 20 years which is the north isn't doing enough it's not giving us enough money we're not getting the support you promised us and we could go into detail about that but you know it, it's takes it's time consuming what unions I think are trying to do in this is they realize that the uh, decarbonization is a top priority. They understand, you know, they're, they're the working class are the ones are going to be affected the most, and particularly the working class of the South. Poor and working people are going to suffer the most. So they understand it's a priority. They also understand, or beginning to understand, that there's been a massive failure at the level of policy, and they hope to push for a new pro-public approach, signs of which are expressing itself at the global level around actually the uh, the call for a global public goods approach to vaccinations for example this has become now quite compelling looking at the situation where some of the countries of the global south have only six percent vaccination levels why because of vaccination apartheid so I think this has opened up a debate about, well, if a global public goods approach works for vaccinations, why can't it work for carbon reducing technologies? Why do we have to have private markets to drive those things? And why can't it be done through public investment? And is this and just you asking this question? No, I don't think so. I think some many years ago, I mean, almost a decade ago, with the project we have at SLU, Trade Unions for Energy Democracy, we started advocating for control over public energy, reclaiming control over public over energy to, in order to drive a planned transition to a low carbon future. It was considered mission impossible then. It's not considered mission impossible mm -hmm. now. And so there is there is a growing uh, support for this for this approach. And that's what we were doing in Glasgow. We were advocating alongside the Scottish Trade Union Congress and other unions, the French Energy Unions in FNME, CGT, and a bunch of other unions are rallying around a public energy pathway. And we adopted a program called the Trade Union Program for a Public Low Carbon Energy Future, which has got a lot of unions signed on already. And that's a step in the right direction. But I wonder, as you talk about international unions, and they often have that word international in the name, it yeah. doesn't always, it's not always clear what's international about them. There has been action by union members during this pandemic of various kinds, including nurses staying away from work 
teachers, the same thing, uh, using the power of their labor, of course, as essential workers, and also the power of withholding that labor to make a point about safety and necessity and community <laughs> well-being. Is that on the horizon around energy? Is it possible that we would see concerted, and I guess it really would have to be large-scale energy worker resistance, as it were? And where would that happen? If what we're trying to do is expand a sector, and we've still got an awful lot of union members who think their jobs are attached to carbon. I think as a standalone issue, as massive as it is, climate change is not going to mobilize millions of workers to take action. But we can connect a climate protection public approach to the struggles that are taking place. Let's take three years ago, the Yellow Vest uprising in France. This was ostensibly because drivers of taxis and trucks and uh, buses didn't want to pay the additional charge on diesel fuel, which was presented to them as a pollution tax. Now, the demands that came out of that struggle are very interesting, reclaiming the power sector to public ownership because it's been partially privatized in France. And in the last year, the French energy unions have mobilized a public campaign to stop the breakup of the national energy company, EDF, and they've been successful until now. Macron has, has postponed the decision until after the election, which of course he hopes to win. But these, you can take this issue to the streets, but it usually comes as part of an immediate struggle. But the, the political task is to make the connections between the, the bigger questions. Well, that relies on storytelling and narrative to no small degree. And one of the problems that I've had with our discussion, especially the media discussion around climate, is it's all been about numbers, whether it's, you know, 360 or COP26 or yeah. target this and um, emission that. But it really does come down to people and public health. I mean, we're sitting just blocks from the South Bronx, which because of emissions and decisions about where to route truck traffic has some of the highest asthma rates and COVID rates in the country. Well, this is about people at the end of the day. Well, if you look at the air quality data in places like China and India, it's horrific. And, but I think this is another way of struggle around protection of, of human health and public health can raise issues about not just the particulates that, that get into your lungs, but what it's doing to the atmosphere. And we can put those issues together, I think, quite effectively. And nurses' unions have been su very successful at doing that in the U.S., pioneered by the U.S. nurses, I think. New York State and the National Nurses U uh, United have been, we're on the cutting edge of, uh, and have been on the cutting edge of connecting health to climate and air quality and other other pathologies that are going to come from climate change. And do you think we're going to be able to bring along former coal miners and those who've been making their livelihoods perhaps for decades, generations, in the carbon economy? Well, I think we can. I think that, that again, we have to get away from this market narrative because it's not that we're going to end fossil fuels in, in the next 10 years. This is not possible, technically. I mean, this is some of the things we have to face up to, that there are huge challenges with turning a fossil-based energy system into one that doesn't generate emissions. These challenges are own, it, it, they're complicated, and when we talk about numbers, you ain't seen nothing yet. I mean, there are, there are levels of numbers around what renewable energy can do, what nuclear power can do, what other f hydrogen can do which is mind-boggling to the, norm, you know, the everyday activists or the everyday union leader, for that matter. Somehow we have to communicate 
this reality, yes, in storytelling, but every story has a number, right, as well. They're not, it's, we wouldn't talk about a woman athlete winning a gold medal in the 100 meters without talking about the time she did it in or how <laughs> many right, hours. I'll give you some numbers. You're yeah. allowed to have some well, numbers. You can have some numbers. <laughs> I guess I'm a numbers dude. Yeah, we can get our heads around it. I want to come back to that international word. Yes. Because I think some people watching may know that they pay their union dues, but mm. like your union members, but they've no idea that it's helping some of this work to happen. Can you talk about that? Like the degree to which unions, how unions participate, how somebody like you gets to go and do some of this work? Well, just to clarify, I mean, the word international is a U.S. in many ways when you say that the international union of, it usually means U.S. and Canada. So it's, it's kind of international, sort of. But when we talk about the international trade union movement, these are global union federations and national centers that are all connected through the International Trade Union Confederation. They've got, a, you know, a, a century-long record of working on international trade union issues. It's really only in the last 15 years that the international labor movement has really begun to pay attention, not just to climate change, but any environmental issue. It was really a few diehards who often went to the UN climate talks. The first COPs were attended by union health and safety staff who largely went on their own dime because they were concerned, but their union said, eh, do we really, is this really a union issue? Now it's a number one union issue. So I think we've seen some progress in terms of the awareness of unions and the need to address the climate All crisis. Right, so your, your dues dollars at work. Well, look at South Africa, it's, a, it's got something like 60,000 coal miners. Most of the electricity in the country is generated through burning coal. How do you, how do you pitch that? to those workers, and this is in a country where a job is really a precious thing with 30, 40%, more than 40% unemployment now, and amongst uh, Africans, it's much, much higher. But you can, because first of all, the coal generation in South Africa is it's gonna have to be phased down through a plan, and that plan is gonna be a 20-year proposition, not a five-year proposition. It's actually, a good way of engaging minors because most of them you know will either be retired or they will want you know they would be quite happy to take take an exit option if they could get it so i think we have to just basically plan our way out of this uh, into a different kind of energy future and when people have a picture of what those other jobs will be they might very well want to have their kids have those jobs instead well that goes back to the article about the role of the renewable energy companies see the companies are they're not charities they're for-profit institutions and that has to change. We could generate jobs, not just in renewable energy, but all forms of different low carbon energy systems, also energy conservation, public transportation, changing our food and agricultural systems, our built environment. All of this is a 30, 40 year project that could generate a lot of meaningful work. But if someone's trying to make a load of money out of, out of hiring people to do that work, it becomes much more complicated and that explains why we're not reaching the climate targets. It's the profit motive. And they don't just want to make a lot of money, they want to make a lot of money fast. They want Sean, it locked in. It's great to talk to you. Thanks so much for coming in. Issues like those raised in today's podcast are taken up in classroom discussions at the School of Labor and Urban Studies where our preeminent faculty and engaged and diverse student body grapple with the most pressing challenges confronting organized labor and working class communities. For more information about the school, 
visit slu.cuny.edu. To learn more about the podcast and listen to other episodes, visit slu.cuny.edu slash podcast. To subscribe to New Labor Forum and or sign up for our free monthly newsletter, visit newlaborforum.cuny.edu.